0: welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. This is my summer book club, and we are reading Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and we are on chapter five. Now, I have joked the last few weeks, I have recorded these podcasts from a different place every time. So we had Oxford to begin with, and then St. Andrews, and then last week I was in Durham for an academic conference, and now I am sitting in my dear friend Jenna's living room in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Jenna and Macy, if any of you have read Girls Club, which I put out with my sister and mom um, this February, Jenna and Macy were two of my very best friends from my masters at St. Andrews, and I am in this whirlwind trip, uh, having gone to Durham and then Toronto and then New York and now New Jersey, I am having the funnest time getting to stay a bit with Jenna and Macy and just enjoy time with them And this morning Jenna is at work and Macy is at a summer class and so I have been luxuriating in Jenna's lovely living room making myself quite at home with all of her food and (laughs) cooking utensils and kind of enjoying a moment and a morning of (sighs) after about a week and a half of um, traveling and going places. And it's actually kind of a delight uh, to have a little morning off after all of the traveling and I feel so well taken care of I've been thinking this morning about how sometimes on trips I felt really, really exhausted, but this trip has been kind of a, a special thing because each place that I've gone, I felt really taken care of. So when I was in London, I got to stay with um, Shelley Miller and she invited me into her home and she made me this beautiful dinner. And then when I flew to Toronto, Tracy and Richard welcomed me into their home and were so kind to me. And then when I got to New York, Nathan gave me, um, gifted me this lovely little hotel room near where he was so that we could get up and explore New York together. And now I've been received in Jenna's home. And every single place along the way, I think because I haven't just been staying in hotels or even the hotel I did stay in was kind of prepared for me, I've just felt so prepared for. And I think that it's made me think about the fact that I think that being prepared for is maybe one of the most profound experiences of grace that we can have. To feel like someone has anticipated you, anticipated your needs, and made a space for you in their world. That just makes you feel more loved than anything in the world, to me at least. And it's always made me think of in the gospels when Jesus says, I go to make a place for you. And uh, having traveled all over uh, over the last few weeks and been numerous places in which people have made a place for me, um, I realize what a profound thing that is and how it speaks to some kind of essential need, I think, that we have in our hearts, which, in a funny way, segues perfectly into this week's chapter. So this week's chapter is called something about the flag, the flag of the world. And Chesterton goes into all of these questions about optimism and pessimism and how we make sense of them in the world. Um, And really at the heart of it, The whole question that this chapter is asking is how is it possible that we feel at once both at home in the world like it is our world, our family, the thing that we want to defend, and also alien and outside of it. And as ever, um, Chesterton's uh, kind of exploration of this topic isn't really an argumentative one. I mean, he does make arguments, of course, but it's not trying to get at a logical explanation of whether or not optimism is better or pessimism is better. He's really trying to get at how do we come to these intuitions about the world? How do we have these dispositions and attitudes? And what makes the most sense? And um, this is one of those chapters, there there are several moments in orthodoxy where I feel like Chesterton was almost prophetic. He kind of anticipated things that would be true about this world. So in the chapter where he talks about um, you know, the the truest sign of a rotter is that he believes in himself and where he describes kind of uh, the way in which we would come to different politics and religions based on the idea of believing yourself and how harmful that was. And that seems so absolutely prophetic and obvious in our own time, that what was kind of a seed in his own time had come into the full fruition of a giant weed choking out uh, virtue and and goodness in our modern world. And then and in that same chapter, um, when he talks about how modesty has begun to reside in the organ of conviction so that we have such a modest race that men can no longer believe in the multiplication tables, um, that also seems to have anticipated this world that we live in um, in where we struggle to believe that there is truth or facts to get at uh, and where we have such a hard time even being able to talk about truth. So there are many ways in which Chesterton was really uh, could see ahead of his time, and I actually think that this is one of them as well Because what he seems to be dealing with is these two Well really kind of three attitudes, but there's two kind of false attitudes that he talks about regarding the world the pessimist and the optimist and the pessimist is kind of this um, this attitude of, of the world is as bad as it can be and Um, I love when he says that the pessimist thinks that the whole world is bad except for himself. And the optimist thinks that the whole world is good except for the pessimist. And I think you can see this, uh, Nathan and I, I've been with my brother in New York, and we were talking about how this kind of uh, presiding pessimism, this kind of gloom, this kind of feeling of the world being bad and us having no ability to do anything for it, um, is really evident in funny ways in millennial senses of humor. If you are a Twitter user at all, um, but I think this comes at other places, you'll know that there's this kind of humor which is, is really dark, um, that kind of is foreboding, that laughs about the end of the world and um, climate change and political, kind of the inability to do anything in politics. There's this kind of humor that comes out of resignation, and um, it's this... It's this kind of resignation that the world is bad, and we can't really do anything to fix it. And Chesterton notes that this kind of comes from an attitude uh, as though the world, as though we were not in the world, as though we were not, and our fates were not in some way inherently tied into this broken and strange cosmos that we have. And for Chesterton, this is taken to an extreme kind of um, example in in the case of the kind of what you might call the humane argument for suicide. This idea that the world is broken and bad and so really the noble thing to do is to die. And on the one hand this sounds utterly absurd Um, and then on the other hand I think I've seen this kind of belief about the world uh, come up and people have actually had to wrestle with it and in some ways it's an honest thing to wrestle with. If you think that there is nothing beyond this life, that we have no eternal consequences for this life, and that the world is getting worse and worse, we have no control over it, and that we, you know, and then there's this this strange attitude, um, which which Chesterton goes totally against. That why would we continue living, and why would we continue that? But what Chesterton says is that this shows this kind of disloyalty to the world, because he says to kill a man is to kill one man, but to die yourself, um, to kill yourself is is to put to death all of the world. And that this is this attitude of seeing that we are not somehow a part of this kind of cosmic struggle for not only survival, but for joy or for wholeness or for completeness. And it's interesting because um, someone that oddly is the most representative of this to me is the band The 1975, the kind of wrestling with these questions. And you all will have known that I've talked about them um, in previous episodes. And it's one of those strange things for Joy Clarkson to like. They are kind of a pop, punk, nihilist band that is all about drinking and drugs and sadness and nihilism, which one might say are many of the things that I'm very not about. But I think what I appreciate about them is that they are always really honestly trying to reckon with the world. And it's been interesting to watch them kind of progress in that reckoning, because you have, in the very beginning of their... their. Um, their albums. There's this album that's all in black and white, and it's really rebellious. And they have these very anti-religious songs. And then in the next in the next album, it's a little bit more ambiguous and open. They have a they have a, a song called "If I Believe You," written to Jesus, where they're saying, "If I believe you, would you cure my pain?" And it's an honest song. I don't think that it's purely um, sarcastic, but there's also this sense of kind of. Holding him at a distance, but in this most recent album, there is this real reckoning. And I think part of it's because we've had a rather tumultuous last few years uh, globally. It's really interesting because I think sometimes in America we can feel that, but then coming over to the UK and Europe, you have this. There's kind of this uh, widening sense of frustration and desperation and out of controlness. And what do we do with the world? And what does it mean to be moral? Is it even possible in this world? And what does it mean to have hope? And Um, And so it's interesting to watch this most recent album really wrestled that is this kind of grasping the sense that I think life is worth not giving up on um, but I don't know what to hold on to and I think that's kind of what Chesterton is describing as he came to searching for a life philosophy was the sense that life was worth not giving up on that we have skin in the game Um, And I think that's his problem with the pessimist, is that they they act as though they do not have skin in the game, and as though that fundamental feeling that we all have, that life really means something, even if we don't totally know how to explain why we think that. Chesterton had that intuition. He had that intuition that we had skin in the game, that we couldn't just give up on this fortress that is life. We couldn't burn the flag, uh, as it were, of existence. Um, like the 1975, there was some part of him that said, I would love it if we made it, despite all this darkness, despite all this frustration. And um, and because of that, he takes this, this kind of hard attitude against suicide. Now, I think this is a very sensitive thing to talk about. And in some ways, I think he is, um, he prances through it too and maybe too harsh of a way because um, knowing and loving people in my life who've been affected by suicide, it is so often out of a place of deep brokenness or hurt or people who were so mentally ill that they couldn't kind of claw their way out of it. So I think that he is not talking about it in, or I don't think he should talk about it in specific instances of people, but more of an attitude of nihilism, of a giving up on the world, of a a saying that I I can't be a part of it. But something that he says that I think – is really resonant is this idea that to give up on life, and I think that we can give up on life in other ways besides actually killing ourselves. We can give up on life in the sense that we can give up the idea that there's anything worth truly fighting for and just kind of coast through life. To give up on that is to reject as the possibility that there's anything good or true or beautiful in the entire world. It is to, in some way, whether um, that is through ending your own life or just ending your hope in the world, it it is to cut off to kill the entire universe, as he says, to insult every beautiful woman, to say there's no bird, no tree that is worth living for, which reminds me of another, the very ending song of the 1975, um, where he's reckoning with his own choice to continue living in a difficult world in the song called, I Always Want to Die Sometimes, but one of the lines he says in it is that your death doesn't happen to you, it happens to your family and your friends. And there's this picture of when we choose to cut ourselves off in life, whether that is through the suicide that that um, that Chesterton talks about, or really just through cutting ourselves off from hope, we're not doing that purely to ourselves, because when we do it for ourselves, it's just over. We have this kind of finality. You're really rejecting everything that is in the world. But then that presents us with another problem, right? Because Chesterton's saying, so the pessimist says everything is wrong, there's nothing in the world worth fighting for. They act as though they are not on the ship that is sinking. They act as though they're sitting in a cloud looking at the sinking ship of existence and going, oh, well, it's doomed, uh, and feeling no sense of obligation to fight for it or, or to live for it, or that there's that kind of fundamental sense of life being worth something. But then we have the other problem, of course, which is the optimist, who says, oh, life really isn't that bad. And, um, and and he, he describes this as the rational optimist and the irrational optimist. And he says the irrational optimist is better. Often I've noticed that Chesterton goes for the irrational option. I think it would be better to say the super rational option. Um, but that is another quibble. But basically he says the problem with the optimist is they try to pick something in the universe and say, see, this is the reason it's worth living. And the example he uses for this is that of, I don't know how to actually say this word, oddly. It's a, it's a British town um in case you were wondering pimlico um or pimlico i'm sure all the british people listening to this are probably laughing if i'm pronouncing it wrong um but my impression is that this place is a very pimlico is a very kind of dreary drudge dirty not good place um and he's saying that the kind of two attitudes can of pessimism and optimism can be observed towards Um, in in the way that somebody might defend this terrible place and he says the pessimist will just go oh it's better burn it down go somewhere else just move somewhere else because it's not worth it and there's they have no skin in the game but the rational optimist he said will choose something in Pimlico to say that it is good but what he says is that (laughs) if you do that you're you're really not loving Pimlico because the very nature of it is that it might disintegrate and um, and that if that was really the thing you loved then why wouldn't you go somewhere else and find another place that had that feature quality but wasn't terrible uh, and so he says this is the problem with the rational optimist is that they try to look for something in the world and go see that's the reason that we can go on living and it'll all be fine and it's funny because i even think of this in uh, in certain senses i have found in myself like i used to be like the thing that i could find comfort in and i still do find great comfort in them, in this is in the beauty and what seems like the eternal nature of of the natural world. Um, You could say life is difficult and dull and humans go on doing all these terrible things, but isn't nature beautiful and that's something that extends beyond ourselves? And I think that's a very hopeful and good thing. But on the other hand, there's this reality that nature is not eternal. It it tends towards death. And when we destroy it, it it really is destroyed. And so if my hope for the universe is based on something, some feature or quality, if my reasons for continuing to be an optimist in the world is based on some feature or quality, and the whole world is tending towards death and destruction and disorder, um, then I will always either continually fall into despair, or I won't really be loving or hoping for the earth as it is. And so Chesterton's solution to this Is that we have to learn to love the universe in the same way that we would love a person. And we don't love people for their qualities, because if we did that, then when the qualities went away or when they were in trials or tribulations, uh, we would no longer uh, love them. We love them kind of in this, what he would call irrational, but I think is more of a super rational, fundamental sense. We love, um, simply because something is what it is. And that love makes us be able to see it clearly. It makes us be able to see the truly beautiful things and the truly ugly things. And it makes us um, true citizens of the world who want to fight for what is good in it. And I love um, the place that he uh, exhibits this is um, is where he's talking about, uh, and you have to remember this is written in quite a different time, but where he's talking about the way that people sometimes criticize women and their their loyalty to their families or their friends. And he says, Some stupid people started the idea that because women back up their own people through everything, therefore women are blind and do not see anything. They can hardly have known any women. The same women who are ready to defend their men through thick and thin are, in their most personal intercourse with the man, almost morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses and the thickness of his head. A man's friend likes him but leaves him as he is. His wife loves him and is already trying to turn him into somebody else. Women who are utter mystics in their creed are utter cynics in their criticism. Thackeray expresses this well when he made Pin Dennis's mother, who worshipped her son as a god, yet assumed he would go wrong as a man. She underrated his virtue, though she overrated his value. The devotee is entirely free to criticize. The fanatic can safely be a skeptic. Love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound, and the more bound, the less blind. And I really, I love this idea of love being bound. And this is really what Chesterton is arguing for, that he felt um, his intuition about the world was that we had to be bound to it. Not that we needed to think there was some feature in it that made life worth living, whether that was beautiful things or poetry or philosophy or even friendship. Nor um, that it was beyond all saving, there was this sense in which we needed to see ourselves as citizens of the world who were bound to it. And in that binding, in that space of love, we could see more clearly both its flaws and its essential um, goodness, something worth fighting for. And the way he describes this is a loyalty to the universe and um, and a alienation from the world. The sense that life is fundamentally good, even if the life we experience on this earth has some some fracture or shift or um, something that makes us feel like pilgrims rather than at home so this is kind of the place that that Chesterton came to this is remember we're always thinking about the answer to the riddle and this is the riddle that Chesterton felt was true about the world and it's something that I felt very keenly in my own life it's this feeling both that life is somehow somewhere fundamentally worth fighting for fundamentally good fundamentally meaningful even, but also that um, it is fundamentally broken and tending towards chaos and despair, that the world is under siege, as he puts it, and that in some way we are loyal to this earth and belong and long for something beyond it. And this, for Chesterton, is part of what Uh, Christianity answered. Christianity was in some ways the answer to that riddle for him because it told him both that life was good, that there was a God who had flung it into existence and that it was glorious and well-beloved and worth celebrating and investigating and think about but also that there was some fundamental brokenness in it which meant that he didn't really belong. He writes that the modern philosopher had told me again and again I was in the right place "'and I had still felt depressed even in the acquiescence. "'But I had heard that I was in the wrong place. "'My soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. "'The knowledge found out and illuminated forgotten chambers "'in the dark house of infancy. "'I knew now why grass had always seemed to me "'as queer as the green beard of a giant "'and why I could feel homesick at home.'" So Chesterton felt that in Christianity he had discovered an explanation both for his intense feeling of loyalty to the world and also of alienation from it. To me, this is really uh, an argument straight from Romans. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I think that if I needed to, if for some reason, I was going to be locked in a prison for the rest of my life, uh, Romans 8 is one of the chapters, perhaps, that I might choose to be the only chapter I could take with me. And in this section, it talks about um, the sense of Of groaning and longing for a completion or fulfillment or a making right, not of some spiritual making right, but even of all creation, of all the physical world. Paul writes For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. the creation of itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I think the reason I've always loved this passage so much is that it can be easy to think of the redemption that we describe in Christianity as something that is just a get out of, um, get out of death free card, something that when we die, we rise into heaven and that's that. But that has always denied this fundamental feeling in me that this world, that trees, that people, that the faces and the hands of the people I loved had some kind of significant meaning. And at the heart of the Christian belief is not just that we'll be redeemed spiritually, but that this world that God created is good and is broken and will also be redeemed. And this helps us understand, as Chesterton's saying, the feeling of our both belonging in the world and not being at home in it." I think it's really interesting because this kind of fundamental intuition about the world seems to have been something that, led, um, that has led many people to reckon with the faith. Um, somebody who also had this experience would have been C.S. Lewis, uh, about 30 years after uh, Chesterton had this experience himself. And um, also, this is a good moment to mention that, of course, Lewis was very influenced by Chesterton and later on would point to his works, particularly The Everlasting Man, which is his apologetic work on, on, on Jesus as a person, um, Ch- Lewis would point to him as kind of the great example of good Christian apologetics. Um, but I, I point this out because there's this marvelous poem called What the Birds Said Early in the Year, which Lewis wrote about his own conversion. And um, this poem is written about the experience of springtime and about how every year there is this newness and this life that we experience in spring and a new life that makes us almost sense these hints of eternity. And, um, and I think that this is kind of a picture of what Chesterton is arguing for in this. The sense that in creation, in the relationships we have with other people, we can sense this profound meaning, this gesturing to something beyond itself, to the source that gave birth to it, while also sensing um, kind of the disappointment and the leading towards death that we can experience in the world. So I wanted to end today by reading and briefly discussing this beautiful poem by, um, by Lewis, which I think really links into all that... Um, that Chesterton is talking about. And also, I thought I would add in this fun little fact, which is that the first line of this talks about Addison's Walk. And Addison's Walk is this big loop around a deer park, by which I literally mean a park with deer in it, uh, in Oxford in Modlin College, which is where Lewis lived as a young tutor. And uh, he and Tolkien would go on walks there. When they first had the Inklings meetings, they would meet in Lewis's uh, rooms. In Maudlin. and uh, it is said that this is where Lewis, late into the night one night with Tolkien, um, had his first kind of his first step in conversion, which was believing that there was a God, that there was something more than the material universe. And something else that's special about this this poem is that it's actually now on a plaque in Addison's Walk. But Addison's Walk is really special to me because when I have I was thinking about it, and over the last five years. I've always been in Oxford around the same time in kind of the early year, as he talks about in that, um, in that kind of February season when everything is just about to start giving birth to new life. And I've always gotten to walk around Addison's walk around that time. And it's always a kind of special place to me. And I try to go every year, my own little pilgrimage to walk around and think and pray. And there's this feeling of spiritual potency to that place, I think, um, and so, anyway, this is a special place to me. And this is Lewis's poem, What the Bird Said Early in the Year. One last thing. That's also referencing a Wordsworth poem. And I would just like to say that Lewis references a lot of Wordsworth's poems, which I think is very fascinating, and probably for another podcast. Without further ado, this is What the Bird Said Early in the Year. I heard in Addison's walk a bird sing clear. This year, the summer will come true. This year, this year winds will not strip the blossom from the apple trees this year nor want of rain destroy the peas this year time's nature will no more defeat you nor all the promised moments in their passing cheat you this time they will not lead you round and back to autumn one year older by the well-worn track this year this year as all the flowers foretell we shall escape the circle and undo the spell often deceived, yet open once again your heart. Quick, 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 the gates are drawn apart. Well, friends, I hope that you enjoyed this chapter and that it led you into thinking about maybe how you approach the world, either as the pessimist who condemns everything as though you are not on the sinking ship, or as the optimist who is unable to see the profound brokenness and reckon with it as it is. But I hope that just as Lewis and as Chesterton kind of put their finger upon that hope which is found in the world that we find beautiful but the gestures beyond it that we too can follow that and join in the groaning of creation for the rebirth of all that is new and it's, is beautiful I also should end today um, with exciting news which is that I can finally announce um, some speaking with joy live events that we finally have on the calendar we have locations for and we are setting up Um, sign up places for. Now, I have to say that I would love, I I was, I think I was invited, you all were so generous, and I think about 36 people offered to host me in their states and in their churches, and I am so thankful, and I wish that I could come to every single one of you, Uh, and I hope actually that there will be more time maybe in January, so keep your mind um, prepared for this. I would love to come to maybe two more events, um, and two other states in January um, because the response was so wonderful. So with that said, I wish I could come to more places, but right now our two main events that we have planned, or two main uh, locations, and then we'll have numerous events in these places, are in Colorado and in North Carolina. North Carolina, will be we will be doing two events, one on August 8th and one on August 9th. The August 8th event will be at night, um, and at about I think we had it at 7 or 7:30 7 pm, go look on my website and you'll see it. And that will be in the Colonial Baptist Church. And it will be an evening of conversation, of live music, and of thinking about why it matters to cultivate a life of beauty and of goodness in a world that feels really urgent and overwhelming. So we'll be asking that question, and I'll be giving short kind of talks and explanations of this. We'll, We'll kind of intersperse it and wind it in with Joel, playing some of his original music. We'll do some... Um, some readings of poetry and of beautiful passages. And then Joel and I will also play our own music with the two benedictions. I have a band, in case you didn't know that, with Joel. Um, So I really am excited for that evening. I think it'll be one that I hope will leave you inspired and refreshed and that it will be an evening of enjoying beautiful things and thinking about why this world of beauty and goodness matters. And then the next day in the morning, um, on the 9th of August 9th, I believe that's a Friday, Lynn Custer will be hosting a a high tea brunch where Joel and I will talk about... um, Investing in your interior world and what it looks like to cultivate a beautiful soul. We'll also be doing some singing and Some concert stuff there Joel will be our jazz pianist not really He'll be playing some of his beautiful instrumental music in the background While we discuss these things and then there'll be kind of a more it'll be more intimate thing There'll be less people that can fit there. Um, so if you're interested in that go and sign up very soon Um, and and we'll have tea and delicious things to eat and that will be in the morning at 10.30 at Lynn Custer's home in Fuquay to Verena. And I should say it's a tea, but anyone is welcome. So if you are um, a lady, a fella, if you wanna bring, if you're a mom and you wanna bring your daughter, bring both of you. And I believe that the cost for that will be $30. The, um, the other event will be open to the public and uh, we'll be doing a love offering and all of that will go towards uh, joel's my tuition but there's no tickets required um come it is free however i am going to put up a google doc so if you're planning on coming to the free event still sign up so that we can kind of have an idea of how many people will be there so we can prepare and make space um so those are the two events in north carolina august 8th at 7 30 at colonial baptist church and then august 9th and that'll be a paid event for the brunch and um and uh concert and conversation more intimate. You can ask questions. I'm really excited about that. Uh, and we also may be doing an event at um Duke and possibly at, uh, at um Chapel Hill. Uh North Carolina Chapel Hill. So keep your eyes out. If you're any of those places, uh, we will be in North Carolina that week. And then I'm so excited we're going to be doing an event on August 14th with the Anselm Society. It will be at Holy Trinity Church in uh, Anglican Church in uh, Colorado Springs. Uh, We will be doing, it'll be like the event in North Carolina where we will do conversations and readings and a concert. It'll be basically like the evening event in North Carolina. That event is ticketed so you can get those tickets for $20 or if you are a Patreon supporter for me or if you are an Anselm Society member, you can get those tickets for $15. And I am so excited for that evening. It is it's home. It is um, it is home turf. I can't wait to be in Colorado, to sing, to be with you all, to see many of your lovely faces. So go uh, get your tickets for that. Those will definitely be up. I'll put links to all of these on my, on my site. And also, I would love to know if there would be an interest in us doing something like a brunch event like we're doing in North Carolina in Colorado. So if that's something you'd be interested in, let me know and I will see if we can throw that together, maybe at my house in Colorado, which would be a lot of fun. So um, all that to say, go check that out on joyclarkson.com, go to the blog section, you can find that as as well as whatever minimal um, show notes I do for this week, for this episode. Um, I'm so thankful for all of you, thank you to all of you who support me on Patreon, Um, you're keeping me going, and um, I'm just so, it's been so fun to see your comments and your thoughts as we've wrestled with this book, and I know many of you have said it has been kind of an intellectual challenge to you, but I just want to spur you on and say, keep reading because there's this real satisfaction that comes with stretching your muscles. And I always say that whenever I read books that are slightly above me, I always catch more than I think I'm catching. And I think you are too. So thank you all for listening in. And I can't wait to talk to you all next week when we read chapter six. Much love guys.